0: We're glad to have you. All right. Um, okay. We're going to do a quick review from last week. We um, we spent a good deal last week on what major subject? Do you guys remember? Suffering. suffering. Suffering was the major thing, and you know we all do really run from that particular subject in our personal lives, and and it is a, I think a natural response to not not want to endure suffering and not to have to go through suffering. And yet God's Word has a totally different perspective on it, doesn't it? So what we want to do, we, can't, we aren't going to go obviously go through that whole lesson, but what we want to do is we want to see um, what the purpose in chapter 1 was. just want to kind of crystallize it a little bit so that we bring it back to a final conclusion on uh, that particular major subject. So we had I'm going to write this down here, major subject... And I need my black marker. Okay, Heinz will pay attention to this because I always manage to forget to click it down. Okay. Um, so the major subject was persevering in in suffering. Right? Uh, why? What, uh, what ultimately, in chapter one in particular, what is the major emphasis there that says why we should be enduring in that and, and persevering in it? Okay, so it points us right to that end time activity of the kingdom of God that is to come. Why persevere? Because that kingdom of God is coming and it marks you as being one who is worthy of the coming kingdom. So let's just put some of these exhortations down. Um, Your suffering is a clear... No E on there. Clear indication you are worthy of the kingdom, right, to come. And that was in verse 5 of chapter 1. I think I already have that up there, right? Um, And what do we see in chapter 1 that tells us, is happening in the lives of these believers because of their suffering. What does he commend them for? What does he in, does he basically give them a great big old pat on the back about? Their faith has greatly <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, so your faith is greatly enlarged, and your love. What does it say? Your love does what? Your love increases. For one another increases. Would you say that's a true statement when you go through suffering or when you're seeing your neighbors go through suffering that number one your faith greatly becomes enlarged if if in fact you're persevering and you're standing as you should and would you say that as you see friends going through suffering, that your love for them increases. Yeah. yeah. So here we see another perspective that God gives us about the about the purpose for suffering and the allowance of suffering in our lives. Uh, did anybody do a word study on that word persevere by any chance? Do you remember what, what the word definition meant I know this week we did tons of word studies and we're going to do a lot of those this morning but do you remember what the word perseverance meant to persevere in this okay well then let me give it to you it's number fi- uh, 5281 hupo meno is the word h-u-p-o-m-o-n-e hupo meno it literally is pretty much what you would expect it to be it's steadfastness, steadfastness constancy and endurance um The characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and suffering. So, in other words, no matter how... Have you ever seen people go through uh, trials and suffering where they have not hupomenoed? What happens with these people? Yeah, they get angry and they vacate the premises. Now, in they fall apart. It, now, interestingly, since, since the, the last statement was that your suffering is an indication that you are worthy of the kingdom, now we know what makes us worthy, right? Uh, not something we're doing, right? What is it that makes us worthy? What Jesus did for us and the fact that we believe it, right? That we have put our faith and trust on him and therefore, but what proves that we really believe that? is that we persevere in our suffering, right? So your faith, now, so people who, their faith is not greatly enlarged, their love for one another is not um, uh, manifested through these kinds of events in their life, but rather they turn around, hightail it, and they get angry at God, they shake their fist at God, and they walk away from the faith. Um, Now, I don't want to get into too much technicality because I'm not trying to, to make... clear-cut judgments you know that are blanket but what I am going to say is this sometimes we can have momentary moments where we walk out where we get angry in the moment right but then eventually we turn right around we repent we say I'm really sorry Lord I you know that was wrong of me I shouldn't have responded that way or whatever but there are others who they turn around and walk away and for years they remain gone right and since this is telling us that people who endure in it are the one that the, that's the evidence that they actually are worthy of the kingdom, what is that telling you? Possibly. Without trying to be judgmental, but tell me, what do you think that, that shows us? About that person who's walked away now and has been gone for years, been they're all mad because the church got in a big tiff and there was a split. They were probably never truly in faith. That's the the conclusion. Now, I know it's unpopular to make those kinds of judgments. And I'm not saying that our our job as Christians is to walk around and point out people's flaws and, and to make those kind of judgments, per se. But Jesus does make it clear that we are to examine the tree to look for the fruit. And why do you think that that would be an important thing for you and I to consider? Rather than just say, oh, it's not my place to judge, so I'm just not going to judge that person, who, by the way, has been out of church now for 18 years. Well, I'm not going to judge him. He says he believes on Jesus. He's just mad at the church. What, what is the danger in my falling for the lie that I am not supposed to make an evaluation of where he potentially may be? We don't help them to come back. There you go. We don't help them to actually either come back or to actually come into faith, one or the other. Quite honestly, would you say, now we're not into chapter 3 yet, but do you think this book actually is going to address kind of that from this perspective? That we're going to see that here on the one hand is saying, if you're really worthy, you're going to stay and stand firm in your endurance. And if you don't, then that says to me what? You're not worthy, meaning you don't really know the Lord. And at the very end of this book in chapter three, there's going to say, well, but then there are going to be some people who are acting in an unworthy manner. Their behavior is such that it's an unworthy manner. And yet, what does it say there? Do you remember? Right. But admonish them. So there has to be some kind of judgments that need to be made by us, the church, those who are being faithful and who are strong in faith, who are uh, walking in a manner worthy. We are enduring in our struggles and our, our struggles and our trials. Um, but on the, on the other hand, we, we definitely need to get beyond, the church needs to get beyond this, this thing of saying, well, that's just their private business. No, we need to be more concerned about their eternal soul than we are about um, maybe stepping on toes a little bit or maybe even hurting their feelings because we've, we're concerned about them. It's more important that you consider that person may need you to love them into relationship or love them back into correct relationship with God. You might be the only one who's been brave enough to come up to them and say, Look, Joe, I don't know why you've walked away from God 15 years ago, but buddy, you need to consider, do you really love the Lord? And if you do, God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? There needs to be somebody who holds their feet to the fire, and if, if in fact then he gets really mad about that, you can pretty much be assured that probably, if it's been fifteen years and now he's mad about this new this new confrontation, there is no spirit in there giving him conviction. There is there is no sensitivity towards God, right? Okay, I can tell everybody's going, "Ooh, this is this is it is dangerous water to tread on." But I just wanted to go back and and review the, the, the practical applications of what we looked at last week. It's imp- it, yes, it's important for us to get a biblical view on what suffering is for, correct? But it's also important for us to see what are we supposed to do about the idea, the concepts of suffering in our, in our world and in our church around us. How are we to relate to one another as the body of Christ so we can help one another? Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that if you persevere, if you're suffering, that it will not only help you, but it will help others see how the Lord is
0: working. Yeah, and do you think it's honoring to God if you and I don't approach somebody and try to help them come? if if we aren't willing to correct them and we're not willing to challenge them as to whether or not they are or are not actually in faith, and if we're not willing to and or correct a person who is in faith who's being disobedient, we need to give people space too. We need to give people time to hurt and mourn and struggle through personal things. It's a journey, right? But if you're talking a person who's been gone a lot of years, I, I have family members in my past I mean, and friends I've known, Oh, yes, I love the Lord, but I'm just done with organized church. I'm so sick and tired of all the bickering and all the fighting and all the issues, right? I don't want to do it. Or I am so mad because God took my wife, and I don't understand that. And what kind of a God is it that would take my wife away from me when he knows I loved her and I needed her? And, I mean, there's all these kinds of things, and they're truly deep emotional hurts. And yet we can't allow a person to just stay there, can we? as the body of christ is that honoring to the lord no so it's a challenge this morning to consider the people in your lives that maybe gently and lovingly we need to approach somehow and you have to figure it out and you have to wait for god to open the door it can't be it's not our job to go around and inspect everyone's lives you know life but there are people you know personally that you know need help mm-hmm Absolutely. And if you don't have relationship, that's pretty hard to do. So you don't just approach, you know, somebody you don't know and say, you know, I see that you're, you've are you got this problem and, yeah, you have to, it does need to be relationship. Yes, Diane. When we are in faith, mm-hmm. we are
2: moving more and more in the direction of the kingdom of God in our minds, in our view of the world. hmm Mm-hmm. And when someone in the world is put in the same situation, they're going to reach for what is their security.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, and or they'll even turn and blame God. If they don't have a relationship with God, the first thing they're going to do is say, well, God did that, right? right. Yes.
2: Went through, and he paid with his life for his faith. But I have had situations in the workplace where my my faith has been clearly ridiculed.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is now for sure, especially when you, once you've studied, you know, what God is saying about that thing. Okay, so let's go on and look at them then. Persevering in suffering, it shows that, that it's a clear indication that you are worthy. In other words, that you do have salvation and that you will be entering into that kingdom to come and your faith through suffering is greatly enlarged and your love for one another is greatly enlarged. So this should be a word of encouragement. Another word of encouragement he brings up a little further on down past that, verse 5, I think in 6 or 7, he talks about the the kingdom to come, right? What does he tell us about that? What's going to happen concerning your suffering and pain eventually? What is he giving you courage about? He's going to one day give you relief. One day, one day, I'm just going to put on here one day because we're going to enter that subject of that day. One day, Jesus will give you relief will give relief. Now, I noticed that this was stated to those in Thessalonica, right? How many years ago? About 2,000 years ago, okay? So when he says, one day Jesus will give you relief, and we're now 2,000 years down the road, um, what is the implication then? What is he talking about one day that Jesus will give relief? Meaning what? Obviously, it didn't mean he's going to show up at your door tomorrow and relieve you, right? <laughs> no. no, but one day, Jesus will give relief. And when does he give this relief? At his coming. So, what is he talking about here as far as this exhortation? It's talking about the day of the Lord. Yes, he is talking about the day of the Lord and... What is he saying to you and I about suffering? One day what? It It is going to be done. Our suffering will end, and not only our suffering, but all the generations of suffering will end. God will bring it to um, to a culmination at his coming. He will put it right. He will make it right, and then he will rule and reign and suffering of this kind where the oppressors oppressors or the afflictors are coming against us, particularly coming against us specifically because of our faith, that will cease. Wow, would you say that's an encouragement? Yeah. And he says not only will he give relief, but what else is he going to do? Because there are some people who... I can tell you, I'm thinking in my mind things like the Hitlers of the world and the Stalins of the world, and the, I mean these people who are particularly evil and particularly aggressive against, in in really massive ways. You know, what else does he tell us? He will repay them. He will re- repay them. Now, you know, for, for I don't know, for me because I tend to go, oh well, you know. Yeah, he deserves, he deserves to be, you know, get, to get in trouble, but how much pain do I want to inflict? Thankfully, it's not me making the decision. God says one day he will re- repay them. And the repaying, by the way, is going to be what kind of justice? Because that word just, judgment is going to come up for us today. Righteous judgment, the righteous judgment of God will be in, in, uh, implemented or imposed, right? So he says God will deal out um, retribution. And I'm going to put on here uh, God's righteous judgment. Because it will be fair. It will be just. It's not going to be like the kind of retribution that you and I would have. And this is where the book of Romans says it's not ours to avenge, is it? It's not for us to repay. We are rather to heap burning coals upon the heads of those who do evil to us, correct? And uh, by the way, that heaping of burning coals on the head is actually a positive. It was, cons- it was. they would carry these pans of coal and they would carry them back to their fires in their home where they, because it's an essential to have fire in that day. And so you would give them coals for them to build a fire, not just a few, but heap coals. Do good back to them rather than them to do uh, evil to you. Um, what is going to happen then ultimately because of your persevering, because of your holding and standing fast and suffering, you are now proving that you are going to be worthy, right? And what is God now promising also for you and I at the end? What is going to happen when he comes? Pardon? Pardon? Yeah. Well eventually we're going to be have life. But before life eternal, what's he gonna do for us? Yes? And try verse twelve. There, there's going to be glorification for us, right? He says at his coming, he will be glorified in you and you in him. There's going to be a moment of glory that's going to occur. And would you say that that is a motivation for us as people? Have, you know, when you were growing up with your... Uh, um, or let, let me switch it because we're a little older group here. When you were raising your children and you were potty training your child... What did most of us do for children when they went potty where they were supposed to? Mm-hmm. Give them M&Ms. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. You got it, girl. Yeah. You had a little jar of reward something on in set close to the potty chair, right, that they get to go into the jar and pull out a little reward sticker or a piece of candy or something, a little toy something. Because why? We would reward if you go through the scriptures, how often do you see where God mentions rewards for doing well? A lot. Often. Even some, and some of it is just verbal, too. There, there's always that verbal thing. I mean, I can't tell you how often, you know, I would pick my kids up and give them a hug and a kiss and just dance around in the bathroom, you know, jumping up and act like a, acting like my own child. Yeah. Now, and I think one day somebody will be doing that for me, going, yay, Katie! <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? But hopefully... Hopefully, you know when you get really old, that happens too, but, <laughs> but when you're, when you 're a little child and you 've got your mom or your dad and they 're clapping and applauding and they 're so excited and they pick you up and they, they swing you around and they you know they 're all excited because we even have commercials on TV you know we see them all the time um, it, is a, it is a part of god 's system that reward Is part of it. Now, that does not mean we have earned our salvation, but the joy of being told, Well done, my good and faithful servant, is a principle that God established, and you see it in our everyday world, don't we? So this is something that God says, you will never get too old to want to feel that God is proud of you. I have have my little plaque on my wall at home. I still, I love it. Do you know what I'm talking about? It says, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. (laughs) 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 And I can tell you, I, and I... I love that plaque because for me what that says is there's a sense within me of knowing that God values me as a human being and he wants to tell me well done and I need to hear that because what does being told well done do for us? It encourages you to keep doing it, right? It in, right. So Paul's letter to these believers in chapter one who are enduring suffering, he's just told them, this is an indication that you actually are saved, that you are worthy of the kingdom of God, right? And your faith is being enlarged and your love for one another is growing because of you enduring suffering. Look at how you reach out to one another because of it. Look at how you seek one another's fellowship because of it, Right? And he says, one day God is going to come, he's going to make it right. He is both going to put it to an end and he's going to bring retribution on those who are doing this. In other words, daddy is going to go to the playground and he is going to address the bully on the, on the playground. He's going to stop it, right? But also you have to know that, that one day God is going to reward your good behavior. Is that an exhortation or what?
1: Yes. Okay, so he says in
0: between. That's exactly right. It is very clear, is it not? And so when you think about those people who have walked away because of pain and suffering, and we've not addressed them yet, we've not confronted them yet to say, which side are you really on? Right. Are you in faith or are you not in faith? If you're not in faith, I want to bring you in. If you are in faith and being disobedient, you're going to miss out on the well-done, good, and faithful servant. Let me help you be get, receive from God that, that verbal... Uh, approval and those rewards the specific you know we we are doing a class on that but there are specific rewards that god has promised one day that at that bema seat we will enter in our works will go through the fire and there will be reward for those things which you've done you have done which bring him glory yes. right all right so god will deal out that retribution and then he he will be glorified at his coming He will be glorified in you, and you in Him. Okay, so that's in verse twelve. Um, now, this is very interesting because I looked. I, one of my commentaries I read on this is called the Commentary, Critical and Explanatory. He says he will count you worthy. That statement, look in your verse, verse 12 at that with me. Because I want to give you kind of a Greek um, emphasis in this. In order that uh, they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth. Oops, that's not it. That's chapter 2. Sorry, no wonder I got to have chapter 1. Chapter 3. Chapter 2. I'm missing chapter 3, or chapter 1. Here it is. <laughs> Took it out of my book for some reason. <laughs> it's pretty bad when one is missing and you're going, well, that's not the right verse. Okay, so that. Do you see in the at the opening of the verse, the so that? That's always going to tell you that there's a, it's a, basically a term of conclusion. It's telling you that there's a reason for whatever has come before it. He's praying to this end that God will count you worthy. That clear indication will be there um, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says here um, he will count you worthy that he will count you worthy is this. The prominent position of the you in the Greek, so in the original Greek, the you is the dominant word, the way it's couched and and laid out. Um, It makes it, that word you, the emphatic word of the sentence, that you be found among the saints, in other words, right? Right? that you be found among the saints whom God shall count worthy at their calling. In other words, the, the being counted worthy is a done deal, right? right? And he's saying that you will be because your the evidence is there that has already made you worthy. Well, what made you worthy? Your, your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what made you worthy. Not what I did, whatever that great thing was that I did not even the work I accomplished is what matters to God. It's that he made me worthy. So uh, God shall count worthy of their calling. There is no dignity in us independent of God is what the commentary says. So then if you look at verse 12, the finishing up of that, he says, according to, do you see the next kind of statement that links all of this together? So that you'll do this, but it's according to what? Yes, so according to the grace of our God and Jesus. So it's the grace that's given to us that makes us worthy, that gives us that well done in the end. What, what he's most pleased of is this is kind of the bullet points I came up with. So this is my um, commentary. Okay. I have three points. Number 1, glory is attained from his work, not our work. That ultimately, although your work is the indication that his work has been done in you, but the real glory, the glory is really attained from his work. So again, it takes it right back to God being the the in, the instigator of all of the glory that's going to come about. Glory is attained from His work, not our work, number one. Number two, our work is because of His work in us, because of His grace in us. We wouldn't even be doing these works, and even if we did do something that we considered on a human level as good, is it any good if you don't have Jesus starting it, if it's not done through the power of the Spirit dwelling in you, if the relationship with God is not there for us? You can can serve your country. You can serve in hospice care. You can serve... Um, helping the leopards and the sick people of the world. You can, you can do all kinds of things. You can hand out food to the poor and the needy. You can, whatever your mission is, you can work in prison ministries. You can do all of that. None of that matters if the grace of God has not first been worked in you. Because those works are nothing. Right. Yes, right, right. And without the the source of real goodness, there is no true goodness, okay? So our work is because of his work of grace in us. And the third thing is our work is simply evidence that he is in us. Is that not what this really shows us in chapter 1? The evidence, he starts out saying your suffering is a clear indication that you are worthy, right? And it's the grace then... It's because of the grace that has already been worked in you, then, that um, at his coming, there'll be glory. Glory for him and glory for you. Well done, good and faithful servant, but well, well done because I worked in you, and you allowed me to. It's the cooperation of that Holy Spirit working. Yes.
1: Looking at verse 11, I think it really, for me, helps clarify. It. Okay.
0: The work of faith with power. That's right. What is the power?
1: Right. You know, and he's saying that he will fulfill
0: that. Right. And it's that work of power, and that word power, again, is dunamis, Right. So there you are, you are right back to that Holy Spirit work, that supernatural work of God. So that's a review then basically of what we did last week, just from a slightly different perspective. To say again, we went into lots of cross-references last week and looked at the whys and the hows and what does it do for us and what does God expect of us and you know what is the result of it and so forth. Uh, and in the end, we ended up with a, a, a nice little list and we didn't get to fully develop it at, because it got to be the end of the class but, but um I did send, <coughs> excuse me I did send my note out that shows us hold on I got to get a drink of water <coughs> excuse me <coughs> oh I don't want to cough into this microphone <coughs> All right. Now I lost my train of thought. (coughs) I do. Does somebody have one? That would be lovely. Thank you. So what we wanted to do at the end was view. How do we how should we view trials according to God? Consider trials joy. What else? Oh, thank you so much, dear. You are a lifesaver that they are the pr- again the proof or the evidence of our faith <coughs> there you go it has its perfect result which brings us makes us perfect complete lacking in nothing Yes, it opens up your heart to be thankful to God for the work that he's doing and how he takes you through it. And if, in fact, your faith is being greatly enlarged and your love for one another is increasing, you're going to see God in that, right? Okay. Any others? If you want to see a good example of there's a little movie on Netflix about other people who went through
1: the tornado and more Oklahoma. Mm-hmm.
0: Mhm. Awesome. <clears throat> right. So, do you remember last week that I had a little guy here who looked like he was in big distress, and then down here I had a nice little big smiley face? Right. What do your trials do for you, and what sh- or what should they do for you according to this? And uh, joy. That's be- and the joy you have is because what do you know is coming. That one day the Lord is coming. The, your perspective, in other words, is eternal. This life is temporal, and our trials in the moment seem like they're ongoing and forever. But the reality is one they will be over, and when they're over, it will feel like a breath, like a moment, right? And so uh, the first chapter, chapter 1 of this writing, he keeps uh, bringing their focus to the end, saying, One day, one day. At his coming in that day, right? So it keeps giving them this, this direct, like he keeps turning them and saying, Put your face upon the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured his cross, yes. right? He scorned its shame, and he is now where? Sitting at the right hand at the throne of God. One day you and I are promised a kingdom that is coming. And then once that kingdom, although there's a thousand year reign on this earth, that kingdom goes eternally into eternity. And one day moves from this life and this world into the new heaven and the new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, what? No more what? No more more tears. No No more suffering. No pain. No death. Nothing like that. We will continue to have some of that on a moderate level in that one thousand year reign, but it will be under the reign of Jesus Christ, who will be ruling and reigning. There will not be uh, the kind of stuff that we are seeing going here where they are afflicting those who have faith that will that will come to an end. He is going to in righteousness rule and reign right because what, what one of the things I, I remember about doing the Book of Daniel was we saw a statue, remember, in each of the parts of the statue, then um, it, as the statue was being crushed, first it crushed one part of the, he- of the head, then it crushed the shoulders, and then it crushed the, the thighs and the hips, and then eventually it crushes the, the legs, and then what happens to that rock? It becomes a great mountain, and it fills the whole earth, right? So what's important for us to constantly be reminded of is the fact that one day these the nations which right now are being ruled by evil men will cease Yay. One, hallelujah one day jesus will rule and reign and when he's ruling and reigning we will not have the kind of ruling and reigning we are seeing in our world today where evil men oppress those who love god right yes Yes, but this book points us to keep our eyes upon the day that is coming one day and to put into proper perspective how temporal this is and the purpose of what this is all about. The suffering, what is the purpose? It's to help us become our faith to be greatly enlarged and our love for one another to grow, that eventually one day then God gets glory in all that. His work of grace in us will have produced glory for him And we will be said, uh, he will say of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm Yes. That little clause right at the beginning, for the joy set
2: before him, Paul is exhorting them to for the joy set before them, the
0: believers. That's, exact, that's why I brought that analogy up. That's exactly what I was saying. Here, we see the same thing, that you're worthy of that. He was also worthy. And what did he do when he himself, by demonstration, showed us how to endure through suffering? It says he set his eyes upon the, uh, upon the joy before him. We are to keep our eyes upon the joy that's to come. That's going to help us get through the pain of this life. And there is a lot of pain in this life. The illnesses and the and the f- medical problems and the the deaths my um, my daughter her, uh, her family is now s- going through another family death that just happened yesterday and it is so painful to watch people and she has young, te- young teenagers in particular who are very um, affected by this, and Jimmy as well, because this is a lifelong relationship of a very close family member. Um, and she died, you know, she died of cancer and she died in very similar way to a previous family member. And it's just all these pains and memories and going through it all again. How do you get through that kind of pain, especially when you're young and you're a teenager and you're forming your opinions and you're forming how you view God and the world? Well, what do we do? How do we help them? Yes, let your love for one another increase, right? Mourn with them, hug them, let them know that you love them, that you care. That's right, and you help them keep their eyes upon God who is the one who holds them right there in the palm of his hand, who holds them close to his heart, right? That they feel loved, they feel secure, they feel that God has not abandoned them, even though they're in the midst of this difficult time. Okay, now then let's move on to our work for this week, chapter 2. Um, we are going to go through and look, what we're going to kind of accomplish today is laying a foundation for the week that sh- the works week that you're going to do next week, okay? So this week what we're going to do is kind of the same analogy I gave you last week about the garage. First you have to take everything out and make a big mess, right, and, throw it and spread it all out and kind of categorize it. That's what we're going to do today for chapter two. And once we kind of get everything cha- uh, categorized, and we're also going to do a little bit of a timeline together. I think you're going to love that because we're going to take some of these points of statements in chapter two and actually get them on a timeline where they're going to lay. And then for next week, the focus of your study will be on the day of the Lord. So we're not going to go into great detail on the day of the Lord specifically, but rather we're going to try to timeline the sequence of things and we're going to try to uh, clarify some understandings of all the terms, all the words that are used in here. That's why we did so many word studies this week. Okay. Okay. All right, so let's start with first just identifying our subjects in Chapter 2. The first thing you do is you mark your keywords, correct? So you had keywords, and in this case, I'm not as interested in all the keywords, although it's fine for you to bring them up. And we, we did do a lot of word studies, right? Did you notice all those word studies? And those would be considered keywords. Okay? Because you have to identify all them. What are the subjects then that we see in this chapter 2? The man of lawlessness. lawlessness. Okay? The The brethren. And they're everywhere in there, meaning those of faith, right? All right. Okay, now you're talking contrast, but yeah, what's true and what's false, okay? Yes? The day of the Lord, that's a major subject. The day of the Lord. I think I'm going to do this um, contrast. I think I'm going to put this up here. So when you bring up contrast, true, the truth and what's false. And now, give me your two references on that, Celeste. Where is the truth reference? Okay. And what's false is? Nine. Okay, got it. All right. So I'm just going to kind of do it that way. That way we can kind of get both of those. You were asked to mark and identify your contrasts. Correct. So what's true and what's false would have been one of them. What what else? Do we do. We have the brethren mentioned, and who else do we have? The, uh, yeah, the ones. Uh, those who those who yeah. Would you call that? Would you say that? Um, Hold on a second. I got to write write them. <laughs> those who perish. Now, those who perish and the brethren, those of faith. There's another way that those of faith are referred to. Not only those of faith and the brethren, but those who are what? Those who are chosen, by God. Those who are chosen of God and yeah, they, those who believe the truth. But these perish. But what do they? What happens to the other? They are saved, right? Did you, remember, see, did you see that word in it? It says those... Exactly, in verse 10. The truth so as to be saved because... So it actually is talking in verse 10 about those who perish and they didn't believe the truth. But it brings forward then the point that there's the contrast in this, right? In this book. Between those who don't believe the truth and so they perish and those who believe the truth and so they are saved. saved. So let's put that... The, the truth and false... Um, Those who perish in 10 and those saved. It actually starts, I think, in what, 13 or something like that? Well, it says it in 10, not about the opposite, though. It doesn't show you the contrast. The contrast is probably 13, right? Because in 13, it says chosen from the beginning for what? Salvation. Okay. So there's a great contrast there. Those who perish in verse 10 and those saved in verse 13.
2: Okay.
0: Okay. And what do you see? Verse 2, he says,
2: you know, that you not be quickly shaken. And in verse 15, he
0: says, brethren, stand firm. Very good. Okay, so you could say on the one hand, do not be deceived, shaken, disturbed, right? And it's contrasting to hold fast to the traditions taught. hmm Okay, do not be deceived is in uh, three. And then hold fast to traditions is in 15, right, basically. Okay. Okay, they don't believe in those who take pleasure in wickedness. Uh, So again, we're back to those who perish and those who are saved. Exactly, right. So there's another contrast. How many contrasts did you end up with where it looked like it was the we and the them? Quite a few? Almost all of them. So what does that tell you once you finish doing contrasts in this particular book? In this particular chapter, I mean. What surface is to the top? Some people, go there. some people go to heaven and some people Don't. go Don't to Don't. the other place, the <laughs> perishing place, right? <laughs> forwarding the mail address here. Yeah. Our Say it again? We're determining our, where our, our mailing address, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> forwarded, <laughs> forwarded, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, any other subjects besides the idea of those who are going to perish, the day of the Lord... The man of lawlessness. Who else? What else do we have for subjects? There's a couple of very interesting ones. Were there any in there that were confusing and you're like, well, what exactly is that saying or who is that? Yes, there's that restrainer. The restrainer. He becomes a very interesting subject. The he or the what of that, correct? So we're going to talk about that. There's another particular event that's going to happen, and it must happen first. The apostasy, apostasy. okay. Okay, now there's lots of other words, and we know that because Kay asked us to look them all up. We must have looked up about 15 words this particular week of homework, huh? So, we know that there, there are lots of things that, that could be on this list, and, but we've covered, I think, most of the major um, big subjects. We've broken it down then to it being those who perish and those who are saved, and then these events or subjects that are coming up in relationship to this particular people, two people groups those who perish and those who will be saved. All right, so now let's look at some commands to see if we can help clarify a little bit better what he wants from them. What are the commands that you see in chapter 2? Instructions. Okay, and this is concerning, concerning the day of the Lord. Concerning the day of the Lord, number one, do not be, and it goes on, it goes, it talks about being shaken or disturbed. And secondly, do not what? Do not be deceived. Okay. Um, that's also in verse three, okay. That's the first commandment, correct? The, there's also a couple of others. What else do you see in this that you see are very clear for forward things? Is is just do the, this, do this, or don't do that? Yeah, remember the things which I have taught you before. Remember. And that is which verse? Okay. And there's a sister one to it, and I'm going to write it right in there as, basically as a sister companion to it, that is, became our book, primary book, um, key verse. What, which one is it? In verse 15. And he kind of says the same thing. What does he say there? Yeah. Stand firm and hold two traditions taught Okay so those are two did you see any others there's i think there's at least one more that's pretty pretty clear and it's kind of his conclusion point go looking at the very end of the chapter There you go. Comfort and strengthen. Now, what is, so what is he saying there? How are you going to comfort and strengthen your heart? God. Yeah, that God is going to do it, yes. But how, are we, how is this all going to come about? Because of what? That we continue to persevere, right, in those good works and in the suffering, and that we also do what? That you hold on to that which you you were taught. There, from those two points, continuing to endure and continuing in what you have been taught, in those two things will come for you, comfort and strength from God. That's how he's going to comfort you. That's how he's going to strengthen you. I like the comfort part best. The strengthened part's a little tougher because how do you get the strengthening? (laughs) It's greatly enlarged. How? (laughs) By your suffering. (laughs) And it's like, okay, I don't know if I like the strengthening part as much, but I really go for the comfort part. Okay, so, but again, perspective, right? Let's keep God's perspective. God says that if I will... Uh, come to understand and view my suffering in his perspective, from his eyes, then I will understand that this this is of great value to me eventually. In the moment, discipline is difficult. In the moment, suffering is difficult. But in the end, it produces for us that endurance and that perfection that we are complete and lacking in nothing, right? All right. Now... Paul gives a little further instruction. He, gives them, he tells them about this, that you can be comforted and strengthened in your heart. But then he gives them a little bit further instruction about the day of the Lord, too. Because he said, don't be shaken or disturbed, and don't be deceived about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord becomes the primary focus in almost everything that he says in this particular chapter, right? So what, how else does he expand it? He says, remember what I taught you before. Yeah. Now, we're, I think that next week she will take us back into 1 Thessalonians and then other places as well. And we are going to begin to develop lists about things that they have been taught before and things that are taught in other places eventually, right? So we'll look at that next week. But for right now, he does almost immediately then give them some more insight, maybe things that they had not been taught, um, Uh, taught before by him but he gives them insight here what does he tell them about the day of the Lord here that looks like it's new information that there's going to be a uh, that one day this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed what do they think has already happened at this point what's been what's the problem going on in this chapter that they think that apparently been deceived about that that the day of the lord has already come so he's trying to fix that right he's going to correct that thinking yeah, and change your matter that they thought was from paul because
2: it says
0: here a spirit or message or letter that was was it from us so they got somebody said something and kind of quoted that it was from paul yeah so okay so basically someone had had come in and either purposely tried to deceive them or had simply had deceived them because they, they assumed that this was a letter from Paul. It almost sounds to me like from what he's writing here, it was deliberate. That, that's my impression. So if that's true, then somebody wrote a letter to these believers to try to convince them that they were already in the day of the Lord. And w- the effect of that is they're looking around them at their suffering and the persecution and the things that are going on. Now, now this is very interesting. For you and me, we might look around us and go, no way, we're not in the day of the Lord, right? Because our lives are not that turmoilous yet. We look at the, the, um, the studies that we've done on the end times and the things that are going to start to happen, and yes, there's some really bad things happening in the world, but we're not quite there yet, right? But apparently they thought they were. We, have a, we, have other to look at. we do have other scriptures to look at. But what I'm saying is they really thought they were in the day of the Lord. They have been convinced of that. Can that does that give you any insight at all about uh, what they probably were actually going through? We talked last week about Paul's you know, when he came in and he gave the gospel to them, and then when he left the city, went to Berea, and what did those unbelievers of that city do? They chased after him. So what we know is the persecution against the Christians was quite severe. So can you understand how they might have thought they really were in the day of the Lord? That uh, the idea of this man of lawlessness had not maybe as clearly been brought up, but Here he's starting to then clarify a little more insight about the day of the Lord and that coming day so that they will have more pieces to the puzzle. Yes, he had taught them some stuff before, and we're going to go back and look at it. He actually had already described to them exactly some events that were going to have to take place, but they had apparently forgotten. Okay, so he's restating some of this. And in this particular one, then, if we're going to do a timeline, one of the points he gives them is about that restrainer, right? And what does he say about the restrainer? Right, so that there is a restrainer. So let's put this on our timeline. Okay, so there is a restrainer. Now, correct. That's our time reference. If you, you guys are supposed to put clocks by everything where there's a time reference. So there is a restrainer right now in verse six and seven. It tells us. So on our timeline, can, we can st- we can put that in, right there. We're in. I, on my timeline here. I put the cross first. I followed it with the picture of the church, just a little house. The falling of the Holy Spirit is represented with my little. Flying bird there. Okay, and so now on our timeline so far in this generation, and we call, what do we call this era here? The church age. Age. So I'm going to give that a title. And that is who these Thessalonians are. They're the beginning of the church, the new church. We know that from our Acts study. And what he's saying to them right now then in this book, because they, they think they're in the day of the Lord and he's trying to correct them, so he's giving them some tidbits of information. And he's, now he has told them there's a restrainer right now, right? And until he's removed, until he's taken out of the way, he, re, he can, will continue to restrain, right? When we, the last two weeks on our timeline, I gave you a reference in Romans 11, I think it was 25, Let me see if I can find my chart. Yes, 1125. Someone flip open to Romans 1125. What do we know is going on right now in the church age? Yeah? Yeah? But what's going on right now? What are we doing in the church age right now? What are you and I doing? What do we do when we go to prison ministry, when we go knocking on doors, when we go to help our neighbors? Evangelism—we are trying to grow the kingdom of God, correct? So we know that that's going on. What does Romans eleven tw- twenty-five tell us about that? hmm Yes, read that verse for me. Yes, yeah, that's what I want. Somebody to read it. You got it, Carrie? Okay.
1: For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness, in part, has happened to the Israelites until. Of the
0: Gentiles. Okay, so we have the church age, and according to Romans 11, until when? Until the fullness of Gentiles comes in. That's Romans 11:25. All right. So we have we actually put that down. This is the third week in a row. Do you guys think you're going to be able to remember that next time I ask? <laughs> Okay, I hope so, because this is our third week on it. I'm really trying to beat this into your head. We're in the church age, and until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, we will have the church age. Paul is now giving instruction to these believers about the coming of the Lord, which will in the church age, right? There's going to be a time when this day of the Lord comes into history and God has a new agenda to work on. And it's no longer going to be the church. It's going to be this next agenda, this next part of the program in history, right? So he's telling them that the day of the Lord is coming. They are fearful that the day, they are in the day of the Lord because someone deceived them. They do see persecutions and afflictions and all kinds of hardships coming upon them. Their world is very narrow compared to ours. They don't have internet and computers and TVs. So they really think the whole world's in turmoil for Christians, right? Right. And so that's the perspective, though, that you can take to come to understand what will happen one day in the end time. That kind of turmoil will be all over the earth against Christians. When the Lord does actually come, when it comes to the end of the age, there's going to be that kind of persecution, that kind of turmoil against Christians all over the globe. But they thought they were in it. They have been convinced. So now Paul is instructing them, and he's saying, no, 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 there is a restrainer right now. And he is in place until he will be removed, until he is taken out of the way. Correct? All right. Um, He says about that time frame where this restrainer right now is, there's something going on, right? He calls it a mystery. The mystery of lawlessness. And what does he say about that mystery of lawlessness? It's already... Okay, so the mystery of lawlessness... is already at work. Uh, What was that verse? Seven, Seven, thank you. Okay, so the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So that's something that's going on right now. That's very interesting. So we did a word study on that. Let's flip and take a look at your word study on the word mystery. And we also want to talk about that word restrain, too. So we're going to get both of those. Um, All right, what do you come up, what was your your definition on the word uh, mystery of lawlessness? Let's just do word studies down here. Very interesting. It's something, it, this mystery, particularly when talking about those mysteries pertaining to scriptural writing, they are mysteries which only God can reveal, right? All right, what else? Okay. Do you guys remember when we did Revelation, we kind of looked at this too, didn't we? We talked about the, the hidden things that we saw in the, in the Revelation. Same thing, things that were hidden, But we're now being revealed. Now, how much of the end times has been revealed for us, the church? Quite a bit or not very much? Quite a bit. Do we fully understand it? Not fully. So it's, in other words, it's partially revealed to us, and it's revealed to us, and the only way it gets revealed is by who? By God himself, who's the author of this mystery. What makes it a mystery is not that it's uh, mystical, but that it's just not fully known yet. Right? That's what it means, but it's just not fully known yet because it hasn't happened yet. Right? But God has not kept it fully cloaked from us. He's actually given us quite a bit through revelations, through the prophets, through various prophets, actually from many generations. Right? Isaiah, uh, Joel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of them wrote about the end days. And now in the New Testament, we're seeing here Paul is giving us some insights about this mystery that's going to one day be fully known and we also see um um see it was Paul Paul writing about is that what I just said Paul wrote my my lost my train of thought that so this mystery 3466 is basically it's what not is what is not fully known not fully known Doesn't mean it's not known at all, but it's not fully known. So it's a mystery, and it's a mystery about what subject? Lawlessness, and this is very interesting. You all did a word study on that, right? What did you see about that word? Lawlessness. Okay, iniquity and wickedness and violation of, and contempt. And contempt about, about laws, but specifically about whose laws? God's laws. Just so that you clarify that in your thinking. It's not talking about the laws of, you know, the, the land, whatever those are. But we're talking about the lawlessness and the, and the, the vile rejection, the angry rejection against God's law, Right? All right, so mystery is not fully known. It's not yet fully disclosed. And lawlessness... Okay, It say it again. It has a negative... Yeah, okay, so there is that eventual conclusion to that lawlessness, and that actually also reveals how lawless it really is, right? But lawlessness is uh, rejection or, let me see, rebellion, uh, without law, violation, iniquity, wickedness. okay sin against i'm going to put god's law okay because i it, just to clarify make sure you understand speaking about god's law violation unrighteousness and sin against god's law rejection of it rebellion right And it's, a, it's the kind of vile contempt which rises up, apparently, at some point. There's a, a lawlessness that's going to come at some point that is excessive, right? Right now, there's a restrainer. There's a mystery about lawlessness. Does that kind of scare you a little bit? I'm, I mean, I don't know about you, but I look around the world, and I'm going, that looks pretty lawless to me. But yet what, he, what we're seeing here is that there's a lawlessness that is yet to come that is going to be far greater than the lawlessness we're seeing right now. It's, it is a bit, it's a bit scary if you don't know the end of the story, right? For those of us who have, have our hope and our eyes set upon the end and we know what the end is, in other words, my daddy is bigger than your daddy, and <laughs> He's going to win, right? Hey, amen, hallelujah. I'm so thankful to know that, all right? What did you have to say, James? I missed it. Well, it just seems like the
2: mystery of lawlessness kind of then personifies
0: in the man of lawlessness. It kind of be, okay. It kind of, it, it, what happens it when
1: the... It's like the spirit of evil dwells in the lawlessness.
0: Whole. Okay, so then what happens then... What ha- well, maybe I should give myself a little more space here because there's one more event that needs to go on here. It's kind of down the timeline, but what what is eventually going to happen is there is there's going to be a revealing of a man of lawlessness, right? We've already put this on here before man of lawlessness. One day he when is he going to be revealed? Okay, so now what we need to do is kind of make a a step of the things that are told to us in this chapter one. Uh, Kay did ask us to do that. She says, list the sequence of events for the the coming of the day of the Lord. It's not going to come unless what? Will not come unless the apostasy and it's... Okay. right, will not come unless, it, unless the apostasy comes first, and the restrainer it seems like
2: these are happening at roughly the same time,
0: must be taken out of the way. I may have put that yeah, it actually kind of it could be this. It says, but you know what it does say? It says first the apostasy, correct? Let me, get my, let me get my timeline. I'll make sure I don't mess this up. Hold on. I've got it on a... Okay, so you, the mystery is here at work. There is a restrainer now. And what does he tell us about that? And what does he say that you know? interesting you know what restrains him do you there is a lot of argument about that but he says and what was that verse that you know what restrains him now that's seven six Six. okay verse six and you know what restrains him now so there is a restrainer right now and you know what restrains him now they knew what restrained him but we're a little confused on this, right? Part of it has to do with the usage of, that wor- of the word he in there. Let's go back and look at what you did as far as how you connect things. You, you did mark the word restrainer, right? Um, in verse 6, it says, you know what restrains him. What, what is the uh, pronoun that's used with that one? Ah, and it's a big clue, by the way, P.S. What? restrains him it sounds like it's more of an entity or a a institution or something collective it's not it's not an individual correct at this point but later in the English because the English is so poor to translate from the from the uh, Greek in this particular case they use the word he now did anybody do any research on that Right, that's what I'm saying. The he and the his about the restrained those pronouns of he and his being um, male gender are English translations, right?
1: Well, the he that will be revealed is the
0: man of lawlessness. It's the man of lawlessness. I'm sorry, Yes. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I'm talking about. For the mystery of lawlessness, now only he who now restrains is the he that I'm talking about. Carol, did you see it in verse seven? Mm-hmm. So the question is, who is the his? Kind? It the quest, No, the question is, the word he in verse seven is a pronoun that's masculine gender, but in the English they made it a masculine gendered word, but it's not a good translation. No, his time is speaking of the of the the lawlessness, lawless man. Okay, let me show you let me just show you my markings.
1: Okay, well see I have this one as the restrainer and Take this a, one as the lawless.
0: See these brown markings? The man of lawlessness. So that the man of lawlessness in his time, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Okay,
1: and I took this to be the restrainer.
0: Nope. So this is these two here, these are all what restrains him, him, the man of lawlessness now so that he, the man of lawlessness, in his time, he, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. What restrains him now, it says later in verse seven, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. only he, he the what restrains him, uh, n- now restrains will do so until he the restrainer, is taken out of the way. Okay. Okay, we'll fix it, (laughs) (laughs) just so you know. Uh
1: What I saw was the word katecho, or however you say it. Okay,
0: y'all listen real carefully. We're all talking about this. You're going to miss it.
1: So the word refers more to a group of restrainers. In other words, it doesn't mean an individual person. Oh, that's a good point. So that,
0: and this is the Greek word from from which word? um, Which um, one did you check out? She's saying that she has one word that she researched in her word study, and it shows that it's a, that it's a multitude of, it's, it's more than one, in other words. It's not an individual. Uh, two,
1: seven, two, two.
0: Restrainer. Right. Okay. Okay. Two, seven, two, two. Now, what, you know what restrains him now. So we, we all did that one. Let's do it together, the restrainer. We'll put this up here. Okay, the restrainer, another word study. See, this is the day when we are laying all of our groundwork so that for next week we're ready to actually try to make some good interpretations. So, hold on, let me get my my paper that has my restrainer. Here it is. Okay, it's number... 2722 for restrainer, correct? And that word means n- by definition what? Okay, to hold fast or hold down. Okay? To hinder, which makes sense because he's restraining something, to hinder And if you're looking at it in perspective to the context of this verse, he's hindering or restraining what? The man of lawlessness from coming. To hinder, we're going to complete the thought, the man of lawlessness from being revealed, right? Am I correct? Okay. So, in the context of what we're looking at, it's to hinder the man of lawlessness from being revealed. That's what the restrainer is doing. Correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, Carrie, you're saying then that what happened next on yours Uh-huh. Well, the noun version, of it, uh-huh. the verb version the noun says it
1: is it may refer to an individual or more likely a number of people presenting the
0: same characteristics. Oh, that's interesting. I missed that. Ooh, that's good. So she went to the noun, this is the verb form. So this restrainer is a verb, she's saying. And she went to the noun of it where it says it, it can be an individual or a a collective, is that what you how you said it? A number of people holding the same characteristics. That's good. Because here's what here it is ab- what you have to know about word studies. You have to sometimes research it all, get it all written out on paper, and then you go back to your context and say, what makes the best sense for what is going on in my immediate context? Um, sometimes it's not... D- we don't know, absolutely. Is this speaking about an individual that's a restrainer, or is it talking about a number of people that's, that is restraining, right? We have to try to come to a, a conclusion based on what we're seeing in the immediate text, correct? Correct about what is going on. Now, I think what's really interesting is when we keep moving in our homework, we're going to see other word studies that are going to help us to, to more develop this. But for right now, we're going to hold it right there. What we're saying is that we know that there is a restrainer right now. And, and what I think is interesting is this. He says, you know, you know what restrains him right now, okay? So something they know, it's obviously, it's something, I would say it has to be something visible that they can, It's an absolute. They can look and they can see and they can say, yes, there's a restrainer. And I see it's still here and it's still in track. And he's reminding them. You know what restrains him, right? So he's giving them a reminder of something that's concrete that they know. And he's reminding them, you know what's restraining him, right? That he's not going to be revealed until that restrainer is removed, and when that restrainer is removed, would you say they're also going to know that when it happens? But for some reason, these people who had tried to deceive them had said, you missed it. He came, and you're in the middle of it. And he's saying, no, 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 remember what I taught you? You know what the restrainer is, and, and, and he's not going to come and tell that restrainer is removed. Okay, so it's something that they're cognitively aware of, I would say it even, it, it implies at least on the on some level that it maybe is even something that they can, there's a checks and balance that they can visibly see it. That they'll know when it's not there and they know that it is there now. Whatever this restrainer is, okay? Potentially. All right, so that's just one thought there. All right, so now we're talking about, so g- he gives them further instruction. He says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, so we have that up there. And you know what restrains him now, and it's going to be there, and it will do so until he is taken out of the way, right? Then he says, and also this day concerning the day of the Lord, it will not come until the apostasy comes first. So let's look at the word apostasy. What number is that? Okay, and your definition? A falling away, defection,
2: apostasy, or to
0: forsake. Affect, uh, a defection, a falling away. Mm-hmm. I got to uh I got to stand away from, to like stand apart from the study. Okay. So it really gives a declarative separation, right? All right. Okay, and leaving for so you were in one standing at one time, and now you're not. You're in another. Okay, revolt. revolt. I like that word. Forsake. forsake. Could be forsake, possibly. All right. Um, my Gr- my uh, Greek English lexicon it said it's to rise up in open defiance of authority with the presumed intention to overthrow it or to act in complete opposition to its demands, to rebel against, to revolt, to engage in, in insurrection and rebellion. Wow. Would you say that that rebellion sounds like something else we just looked at? That kind of rebellion is something that sounds an awful lot like this lawlessness, Right. So before the man of lawlessness, who is completely, in this kind of way, revolt, forsaking, rebellion, there is going to be something first that is going to be a rebellion, a falling away that's going to happen first before the man of lawlessness is actually revealed. And it can mean that. That's where context rules. okay stays away or to reject basically to reject and it's in I think in a lot of ways that this idea of revolting really helps you kind of go back to this violation this sin this lawlessness or this rebellion that's seen in the word of lawlessness so you almost can see interestingly that lawlessness and apostasy almost seem to come uh, together in a list don't they And also, by the way, did you also see the article before the word apostasy? What does it say before? What is the word just before the word apostasy? The apostasy. That's very interesting. It seems to be a declarative kind. Would you say that right now in our world today we see apostasy and we even see lawlessness? Absolutely. But apparently it is not the apostasy. Um. Is there a verse in scripture that you can recall where we also see that there are men who are um, like this man of lawlessness even today in the world? Now, when we talk about lawlessness, we're specifically speaking about lawless against God's word, right? In other words, they're against who? Christ, right? Against God or against Christ. We would call them then a what? An antichrist. Are there antichrists? In the world today, do you remember where that the Bible tells us that? First John. First John chapter two, and I think it's, I think it was verse eighteen. I wrote it down somewhere. Um, the, the, but there are many antichrists. And go, someone look that up. First John two eighteen, and tell me if, if you can find.
2: Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared. People
0: okay. Have Okay, so we are in, quote, the last times, just by that verse, right? We know we are in, we're in the church age, we're also in the last hours, hour. hour it's called. That's just a time reference, okay? in that, that last hour began at the time, from the moment when Jesus ascended into heaven. He talks about these things which would come upon us in the last hour. So it's just a time reference. It's the way God uses a, a, a general reference of time. So it's talking about the church age, basically. It's called the last hour, okay? Um, uh, this apostasy that, is, that we know is going on even in the world today, and according to, fir- uh, f- I'm going to put it on here, 1 John 218, there are many Antichrists in the world today. Or in the world now, I'm gonna put it. There's another another time reference, correct? There are many Antichrists in the world today. We see that this so this mystery of lawlessness that is already at work. Can you see how first John two eighteen shows you? Yes? There is some of this lawlessness that's going on right now. First John says there are many antichrists, but in the same breath, it says, but there is a time when the antichrist will be revealed. So there is the apostasy. I'm going to put that up here. The apostasy, right? And there is a, an apostasy. We see apostasies even going on again today. This is that time, but there's obviously a restraining of it. To me, that's, again, a little terrifying. We know that there is lawlessness going on, and we know that there are really even apostasies that are going on, and we know that there are antichrists, people who are against Christ in the world today, and vigorously fighting against and opposing godly standards, godly principles, the Bible's teaching on what's right, what's wrong, what is life, when does life begin, what is marriage, right? And so all these things, there are antichrists and there are um, apostasies are going on even now but there is a time according to what we're seeing here when there is going to be a the apostasy and there's going to be a time when the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed okay so it's not man of lawlessness it's the man the man of lawlessness okay because there are men of lawlessness even right now correct mm-hmm. all right so this is helpful we're starting to see that this helps us clearly mark that there are there's going to be obviously an increase. Would you say that? An increase in the measure of apostasy. So he's saying to these people, I know that you're in a time of turmoil right now and that you are suffering, but the apostasy has not yet come. Okay? And it has to come first. And he says, and you know what restrains him, the man of lawlessness. So it's apparently something that they can look around and acknowledge, it's still there, a present among them. All right? So the men of lawlessness being restrained right now. So I'm going to make, I'm going I'm to do this. There's the apostasy yet to come. This is something we're learning. And it is a specific... Rebellion of some kind. That's we, We're not there yet. There is the man of lawlessness being restrained. It almost makes me think, and maybe it does you too, If there was not a restrainer in place, do you think any one of the men of lawlessness that we see in our midst today, that they could rise up to be like this one at the end time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In other words, almost if they were, if full reign were given to them and God were to let go and allow that, that event in history to take place right now today, he could pop up in an instant. That's pretty interesting, Right. It's a little scary, but, but that also kind of is interesting that there's a restrainer right now, and if, you, if you, we ever get to the place where we kind of know where that restrainer might be, the power of that restrainer is at work in the world today. And that man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness will not be revealed until that restrainer is removed. That's a real sense of comfort, isn't it? And if it's something that we're supposed to be able to look around and know, it's still in place, and therefore we have nothing to fear, because that day of apostasy has not yet come, and that restrainer has not been, or, and that man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. We, there is a restrainer, we know that there is a restrainer present right now in history. That's, that's secure. I think that makes me feel good. Okay. And the other thing we've just discovered is that the mystery of lawlessness is not yet, is not yet known, is not yet fully known. So... <laughs> I think that's interesting. Just by the few word studies we've done there, and by putting it on a, on a timeline, we've got a few things kind of identified, that it's the apostasy and it's yet to come, and it's a specific kind of rebellion. It's not the kind of rebellion that's going on right now. There is the man of lawlessness, and he is being restrained, whoever he is. He's not here yet. The mystery of lawlessness is not fully known yet, which means that kind of lawlessness is going to be much worse than what we're experiencing in our world today. Okay, so there's that. So now let's go in and let's do the list of the steps, the sequence of events. Number one, we said, number one, we see that the apostasy comes first. That's the very first thing that has to happen before that man of lawlessness will come. Now, what happens after that? What has to take place next? before he can be revealed? That's right. The restrainer has to be removed, is taken I like that word out of the way. It's like whatever it is, it's an obstacle that just kind of is a barrier between his his work and what he wants to do and what he's being allowed to do right now, correct? Then what happens? Once the restrainer is taken out of the way, then what, what does happen? Okay. The man of lawlessness is revealed... That's in verse uh, 8. And although Kay didn't really ask us to do this, I went to the next step with this because I like to to have this final conclusion statement in here. I think it's like super-duper important if you're keeping your eyes on the end of time, right? What's going to happen after the man of lawlessness is revealed? What will happen at the day of the Lord's coming? Isn't that neat? He will be, does there a verse, that for those of you who did Revelation, is there a verse that makes you think of, what is it, where is that? It's Revelation 19, verse 11. Someone flip that open and read a couple of those verses for for us, just for fun. I know we're not, we didn't do that in homework, but many of us did the Revelation course, and I just want to remind you of the real picture of this where we see this given to us in Scripture. Revelation nineteen eleven, and I think you could read, probably two or three verses. Just stop when you want to. Who wants to do that? Okay, Carrie, thanks. And I
1: saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth came a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath
0: of Almighty God. Okay, let's stop there. You can go on to read that all the way to the end where you actually see him slaying the beast and the false prophet. Now, if you don't have the connection on that, what I can inform you of is one of those is the man of lawlessness, okay? So he is going to come. He's, he appears on a white horse, and upon his hip is a sword, which, and he, with that sword, he will slay the man of lawlessness. The, and it's the sword of his mouth. That's right. But, oh, it's written on his hip is the other. You're right. Good job. Good job, Susan. Okay. Okay, so it's, Eventually then, after the man of lawlessness is revealed, the end of it is the Lord will slay him by the appearance of his coming. Okay, that's verse, that's, you see that in verse 8. Okay, I added a fourth point. She said, list your steps, and she generally only has us do three. But the fourth one is the, the, is the grand finale, when that man of, uh, of uh, lawlessness is going to be slain. So apostasy first, the restrainer is taken out of the way, the man of lawlessness is revealed, and, the, and then the Lord will slay him. So let's get this up here on our timeline so you all can see it on a, okay, man of lawlessness is revealed, and this is going to be at the day of the Lord, um, the apostasy comes first, so that's one. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's two. Oh, restrainer is taken out of the way. Right? Correct? And so since the apostasy comes first, and, and he's going to be revealed, but in between, after the apostasy, comes what? A restrainer. I'm just going to put an arrow down here, right? Restrainer. is taken out of the way. Very cool. And that, what is that verse? Seven. Thank you. Okay. So we got number, this is actually three. This is number two, right? Number one, apostasy first. Number 2, the restrainer gets removed, and then number 3, the man of lawlessness and at the end of that then what happens? The res- the oops, man of lawlessness is what? Is slain. Correct? There's going to be a time when the man of lawlessness is revealed and there's going to be we don't know what it is cuz the story's not told to us in this particular book but we know there apparently he's going to be revealed for something right so he's going to have apparently a time frame when some kind of events are going to take place in which he is basically allowed to to reign and do whatever it is that he's going to do right and then at the end of that what's going to happen to him he is going to be slain. So that's where we see in verse 8. And when he is slain is what? Who's coming in order to slay him? Jesus is coming. Ah, very cool. Jesus comes, the man of lawlessness is slain. Do you see it? Pretty cool. So we got Apostasy first, restrainer taken out of the way, man of lawlessness is revealed. Number four, Jesus comes, and I, I'll just put this as both of these as number four that Jesus comes and that man of lawlessness is going to be slain timelining it pretty nicely there, isn't it? For those of us who did Revelation, this is just kind of review, but you know what's really cool is when we did Revelation, we didn't go in this much detail in this chapter. So we are really seeing it clearly laid out here for us at this point. I think that's really helpful. Um, Let's do a little tiny list about the man of lawlessness because he is going to be revealed, but he's going to be revealed through some very specific events too that are going to take place, right? Things that that are going to really show us that it's him. Let's see if I can find my list. We did a list on the man of lawlessness. Tell me some things that you know about how you're going to identify him. Let's put on here, identity, his identity. He's called the son of destruction. And verse what? Okay. What else do we know? Does that sound like this, this lawlessness and this apostasy right here, definitions that we just did? Sure does. He opposes and exalts um, himself above all objects of wor- worship. And what verse was that one? Okay. All right. This is quite profound. Wait a minute. He's going to take his seat where? In the temple temple of God. So what does that tell you about this coming day of the man of lawlessness? What must be in place? There has to be a temple. Do we have a temple? What temple is it speaking of? The of The temple of God. So there has to be a temple of God in order for this man of lawlessness to do what he's going to do here. Take his seat in that temple. Okay, very interesting. He takes his seat in the temple of God. Okay, and what verse was that? Okay, what else do we know? Anything? Yes. He displays himself as being God. Boy, I tell you, for those of us who did um, Revelation, all of this sounds so familiar, right? Displays himself as being God. Now, there's another thing I just want to make sure. We know that he's going to slay the the um, the man of lawlessness. It says that to us also. But what do we learn about, about some of his activities in verses 9 and 10? Let's. Now, this is very interesting. He comes in accordance with activity of Satan. What does that say to you? That the source or the power behind him is Satan himself. Although he's coming um, and he is an evil man, but the Antichrist is not Satan he is a man who is used by Satan, right? He is one who is, um, if you want to say, in, indwelled maybe, in a sense, by Satan. One of the interesting things to me when you do the Revelation course is the imagery that you get when you look at the dragon and the the various other things that are on there. Do you remember the dragon in Revelation by definition, according to Revelation chapter 12, who is the dragon the, in the imagery of this vision? It's Satan himself, the, the ancient one of old from the garden, right, who, who uh, is called the devil right? So we know that's, that the imagery is a dragon and he is Satan himself, but then in other imageries in Revelation, it talks about him having this dragon having seven heads, right? And on each of the heads are, ho- are crowns. Now, we learned that the crowns represent what? Kingdoms and the king who rules them, right? So you've got a body depicting Satan, and at his heads, each one depict a individual ruler. That really is interesting. So here, when he says he comes in accord with the activity of Satan, it for me it it throws me right back into the imagery of that, that great dragon in the Book of Revelation with the seven heads and the ho- and the crowns upon the heads, which represent these those who would be called like the man of lawlessness. So I'm going to put over here just for the point of reference that this is a ruler of some kind, right? And he's going to, to be so lawless in apostasy, in revolt, in rebellion, right? And he is going to be literally in violation, unrighteousness, sin, but against God's law in that kind of rebellion. His rebellion is not against any uh, uh, Greenpeace movement, but it's going to be against God and anything godly, correct? All right, very good. Any other points you want to put up there about him that would be good identifying markers? Very interesting. It comes with signs, wonders, and faults, whatever it was. False, powers and signs and faults, wonders, right? All right. Um, false, wonders, wow. Power, signs, and false wonders. Now, you can go into Revelation 12 and 13 both, and you're going to see that. You can also go back into Daniel and look at Daniel's depiction of that end-time king. It'll be the last of the statue, the ones where the, the feet are. It'll be um, in chapter 17. He's also depicted when it talks about these different, the the one that is, that was, that is to come. It's a little confusing, but one day maybe we'll do that revelation course again and we'll put this all back together but he is going to come and he is going to be in accordance with the power and the working of satan and therefore he will come with signs and miracles and these false wonders right yes Yeah, that's just before that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You kind of have a... The, out of the order, but yes, though, the, the, but you're right. The, those three um, frogs, which come out of the mouths, is talking about when the kings of the earth are gathered together. And what you're seeing is again in them is this imagery of the who's indwelling them, who is motivating them, who is giving them their their um, power and authority. And there is actually a verse in Revelation 17 that says, "And the beast gives, or and the dragon gives the beast his power and authority and his throne." Okay, So the the beast is Satan, or, or the dragon is Satan, and he gives the beast, who is the Antichrist, his power and his throne and his authority. So that is where it says, and he comes in accordance with the activity of Satan. Maybe Kay will take us into those. If not, next week we'll see if I can nail those down, verses down for you as a cross-reference, okay? Okay, so where are we on our time? We're about out of time. Let's do one more thing, his coming, because this is going to help us really clarify the, this day called the day of the Lord that we're just trying to make sure we, we get prepared for studying this week. What did you come up with on a word study on that coming, the word coming? I found this one to be really insightful, It's number thirty-nine fifty-two, correct? Everyone there? It's Parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. What does it mean? Presence. Okay, it's presence. A- okay, presence, the coming arrival and advent. And did you see the next one, the two A? Uh, Yes, it does. So it is this coming in context to what we're talking about. Is it not talking about when Jesus comes from heaven? His physical, visible presentation, correct? So are we right on target? What is the next three things it says that he is going to do at his coming? Raise the dead. dead. Hold Hold the last judgment. Wow. So at this point, just by definition, how would you identify the day of the Lord? Would you say it is a a one single event that pertains just to the man of lawlessness? Or does it seem to imply by the word definition that there are a multitude of events that are taking place in this day of the Lord? There's a multitude of things. That is all we really need to get to today so that if you're at this point now, you're saying, oh, it looks like we also know by our contrast, when we went back here and we looked at there, there are those who perish and those who are saved in that day, right? Would you say those are two different things? two different kinds of events again two so now what we know there's something about a man of lawlessness that's going to happen there's something about those who perish something about those who are going to be saved these are all different things and they're all falling under the umbrella of the day of the Lord okay that's helpful don't you think because now when you go into this you know you're looking at a time frame not a specific one single event okay isn't that cool All right. You're ready for next week? Y'all did a great job today.